Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on August 10th, 2019 at Provincetown Theatre in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was fashion. We'll open with a story by Mosquito co-host William Mullen. So I, um, I grew up in suburban Connecticut. Connecticut in the house. Oh, you're going to love this story. Love this story. And, um, and every year, the biggest fashion event of the year was back to school clothes. And as a young person, as a kid, that was all the, like you focused on back to school clothes. And in Connecticut, that meant really cool, crisp, new Levi's jeans. Now, I have a brother, and we always begged for Levi's jeans, and he's actually a twin brother, but he's fraternal. And this is the, the kind of dysfunctional fashion family we lived in. We're fraternal twins, we look nothing alike. He has always been taller, darker olive skin, darker hair, it we, we, we doesn't even look like we're from the same country, let alone the same family. And my parents, when we were a young age, determined to dress us the same. <laughs> Which meant he was two sizes ahead of me, so I got his hand-me-downs, which were the same clothes I was already wearing. <laughs> yeah, so I would be wearing the same stuff for like two to three years. People were like, this poor child. So, um, so it was always a challenge, and we'd always beg every year my parents for Levi's jeans. And the thing about Levi's was in the 80s, we lived in the part of Connecticut where the only place that had Levi's jeans was Bob's stores, right? And, and, and my, my, my mom and dad would factor in the gas to get to a Bob's store, and then the additional cost of the premium Levi's jeans, and just be like, nope, forget it, we're just bringing you to the local department store which in my hometown of Clinton, Connecticut, meant this department store called Lapone's. Now, Lapone's was an old store. It opened right after World War II, and it, didn't, it seemed like its fashions weren't updated since the armistice. So you walked in, it was this creaky wood floor, and um, it smelled like mothballs, and there was an old, nice, very nice, but elderly woman at this behind a big bronze, old-fashioned cash register, and then it was her, and then in the back, an old man waiting to you know, size you for those shoes. And they even talked like that. So, um, you know, Lapone's didn't have anything f for a cool kid, right? So a cool teenager wanting Levi's jeans. And we would go there, and all they had was Lee jeans. The ugly stepsister of Levi's <laughs> jeans, you know, and like Levi's had like you, you unmistakable the orange stitch, the 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 badge with the emblazoned horses and cowboys, and it was like dark. And then Lee was just like they just phoned it in with just like Lee on the on that badge, right? You're like, and everyone knew, like, and if you wore Lee or or even worse Wrangler to like school in, Ken in Connecticut, you were horrendously hope, uh, hopeless or probably poor, which is the thing about living in suburban Connecticut. 
You tried everything not to look poor because you were surrounded by such wealth, right? Country clubs, boats, manicured lawns. So even the poorest of the poor were like, I'm not going to school on that. I'm just going to just masquerade and wear this costume every day, even though I, I live in a trip. Like, everyone was like that. Now, my brother and I did not come from a poor family, but we weren't rich. We just had parents who were hopelessly frugal, and they were tightwads. <laughs> so... You know, off, and, and, and we would beg, and my mom would always say, well, when you earn enough money to buy your own clothes, you can buy whatever you want. And then that day finally came. <laughs> it was the summer after our freshman year in high school, and my brother and I had summer jobs. I was, like, working at a marina. He was at Friendly's, love Friendly's, scooping, like, black raspberry ice cream onto the cones of, like, hungry summer people. But... We, at the end of the summer, we had a sizable um, wad of cash, and I immediately made a beeline to the mall, because that's where everyone shopped. I went to the Crystal Mall in Wallingford, Connecticut, right? Uh, Waterford, Connecticut, because Waterford Crystal. They thought they were being clever. But, <laughs> and so I went to this mall, and it was ginormous to my, like, early tween's eyes, and I scanned the floors for the hippest store, and I found it. It was called merry-go-round. And I was attracted to its like new wave neon colors and confetti-inspired design. And I walked in, and I was completely enamored and walked right to the Miami Vice collection. <laughs> and that was, the, that was the big hit on TV at the time. And I loved that show. I watched it every week. And I wanted to be just like Crockett in Tubbs. But truth be told, I wanted to be with Crockett and Tubbs. <laughs> so, I mean, I just dreamt of being on a boat with Don Johnson with his feathered hair and us like saving Florida from bad guys. But so I went in there, I started scanning the Miami Vice collection and I felt so special. It was so different from being in a dressing room with my mom yelling and screaming at me about my underwear size. So and it was magical. This young woman behind the counter, like, like started like hand selecting what would look good on me, <laughs> and and she's picking out this ensemble, and I ended up with like bright white pants, a hot pink dress shirt, and a turquoise blazer, just like Don Johnson. <laughs> and this stuff was expensive. So all my money I saved, I can only afford that one ensemble. But I didn't care. I walked out of that shop feeling like a starlet on Rodeo Drive. I was like, yes. And I went home and I hung this neon wardrobe in my closet. And I couldn't wait for the first day of school. Because I thought everyone, everyone's going to be wearing this new wave neon color. Because like everyone wanted to be like Miami Vice. Everyone. So I'm going to get ahead of it. I'm going to be like a cool kid. I'm going to start the trend. I walk into school the first day looking like a pink flamingo. <laughs> And no one is dressed this way. <laughs> no one. So I get tripped. I basically get beat up. And they start calling me names. Like instead of Crockett, they call me Cockett because of my gay little clothes. <laughs> I run from the school and I, I go to my room. I cry and I take off all the clothes and I shove them in the back of the closet. And I start wearing my old clothes to school. And my mom notices. And she goes, 
what happened to those expensive mall clothes you bought? And I'm like, I'm like, well, unless we're going to Miami and hanging out with Don Johnson, I'm never wearing them again. And then she goes, and then she pounced on this teachable moment, teachable moment. She goes, oh, I knew how to waste the money. I should have just brought you to Lapone's. <laughs> uh, but I had no money left. And she took pity on me. So she did bring me back to Lapone's and bought me Lee jeans, old man Van Heusen shirts. So at least I had something new to wear to school. That's me. Put your hands together for Jill Tildeman. For some strange reason, I love fashion, you can tell. Um, I start, for some really weird reason, when I looked at the word fashion, which I looked at it this morning, the first thing that came into my mind was my grandfather, um, for a couple of reasons. One of them you'll find out in a few minutes. Um, the first reason is because he was kind of a dandy. He, was, um, he grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side. It was very unusual for a Jew of his generation, but he was actually born in New York. And he was in his first job, he was selling rare feathers from birds from all over the world for hats. But then they stopped wanting to kill birds for the feathers, so that was very bad. The depression came and you know a lot of things happened, but that wasn't such a good business anymore. Um, but he was always very dignified and he, he, was, he was a dresser. Um, so I'm gonna flash forward now. Um, I'm in my sophomore year, no, well, I'm in my sophomore year of college. My grandmother has just died, my grandfather's wife, many years, and he's really kind of lost because they were together from, for a long time. In, New, in, in Connecticut, New Haven. And um, so my parents sort of convinced me to go and spend a couple of weeks with my grandfather just to hang out with him and drive him around. And his vision wasn't great, which I did. And he, he was the, probably the closest grandparent I had, but he was really, really difficult sometimes. He, was, he could drive you nuts. And he would just keep thinking of things to make me drive him into town. Like we went in for paper clips and then we'd come home and then he would forget the staples. So we'd have to go back. He was just... <laughs> That kind of thing, he, would, he could drive you crazy. And one thing he pretty much did anytime you ate out was, his rule was you had to send something back. You can't go to a restaurant anywhere. Something has to be sent back. So there was always a little bit of a problem. Um, so, okay, so, but I'm, I'm putting up with two weeks with my grandfather, whom I do, did love too, because he was funny, he was hilarious, and he, had a very interesting life. He used to date showgirls in Manhattan, and he used to take opera lessons, and he used to, he used to see Caruso, he, you know, in New York, he wore all green, and my grandfather was an opera fan and everything. So he was, he was a cool guy. So um, the next thing I know, my nest, I'm, I, I can put up with this two weeks because I'm off to Paris. I'm going my junior year abroad to Paris, and it's all set, and it's gonna be fabulous, and of course, it's my life dream and all that. I'm in Paris, and I get this blue uh, aerogram from my parents and they, my mother, and she said, your aunt and I are gonna send um, your grandfather to Paris for a couple weeks, because he's really <laughs> depressed, and um, you know, he, 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 needs, he needs to be cheered up. Um, so I was, um, I was studying full-time, I'm, I'm a serious student at that point, and I was an au pair for a horrible French family that treated me like dirt. They just thought I was their slave. And I was supposed to just babysit, but somehow I ended up doing everything. 
and I was living in this garret, and I had to eat in my own little room. I had to feed the children. It was, I was very depressed. All my American friends were having a great time because they were all together. But I said, no, I have to work, and I have to only speak French, so I can't be with Americans. So consequently, I never spoke at all because the French <laughs> didn't want to be friends with me. And the kids were horrible, and the family was horrible, so I was lonely. It was, I was not in good shape. And then I read, my grandfather's arriving. The plane will be arriving. And, you know, we set up a hotel and keep him busy. And, um, that, you know, in those days, I sort of did what I was told, I guess. And um, he arrived, and um, we went out to eat. And, of course, I, I had the upper hand, because when he said, translate to the waiter that I do not like the caviar, I could say, my grandfather loves the caviar, but he's really had enough to eat. Thank you. <laughs> And the waiter would smile and, you know, it was, so it worked out and, and we had, it was okay, but he would call me every morning from the hotel and he said, what are we doing today? And, you know, we had to kind of, he needed a lot of direction. So um, I was on, I was invite, I was with officially some other college girls in a group I was associated with and we were going to Mont Saint-Michel, which is that island and everybody knows about, everybody here knows about Mont Saint-Michel. If you don't see me afterwards, that's a cool thing. <laughs> We went there, tourists, blah, blah, blah. My grandfather comes, my grandfather and 15 American juniors <laughs> to Mont Saint-Michel. It was, it was interesting. I mean, it, he kind of made the trip in a funny way. It was weird, but it, it already, that worked out okay. Then we get back to Paris, and I'm done, what am I going to do with him and everything? So uh, he, um, <clears throat> okay, here's the point of the story. <laughs> um, we... He, we went out to restaurants, it was very difficult. Then he, w he wanted me to take him shopping. And we went to Sulca, which is some very fancy store. I don't know if it's French. Has anybody ever heard of Sulca, Rue Saint-Honoré? You have. Is it French? Is it Swiss? Is it? Anyway, he, he wanted to buy, you don't know, you know what it is. Anyway, you must be very fashionable if you know that. Um, so he wanted a cashmere sweater from Sulca on Rue Saint-Honoré, and it took us three hours to pick it out and for me to argue with the guy. We bought the sweater, and, and, and he, um, the next morning he called me up and he, from the hotel. I gotta return that sweater. It's just, it's just not right. The gray isn't right or something, you know? So he, he was dapper. I mean, he was. For, it's amazing. So he was getting to be annoying. I, I put him on a bus tour through Switzerland. I signed him up. I shipped him off on a bus a week in Switzerland. He had a great time. Um, when he came back, we were walking down the street in Paris, and there had been this gray suede coat that I had seen in a store. I don't think it was super expensive, but it, was, it wasn't cheap, and I didn't have the money for it. And I, I had looked at it. And when he came back, he was leaving the next day. And we walked by that, and I had looked at that thing, and I, I just sort of said, hey, Gramps, what do you, is that nice? Do you like that? And he said, well, let's go in. And we went in, and he bought me the coat. And I just ran across a picture of me in that coat the other day, and it, boy, does it look not good when, when I look at it now. <laughs> you know, but it was the most, it was such, at the time, I, I felt like I was an Italian movie star with it. It was this gray, the color of the sea at night or something. It was beautiful. Thanks, Mr. Stewart. That is such a name. That is Howard Steve. Oh, a shoe story. You know? It's a shoe story. Oh, it's a shoe story. We're gonna hear about your shoes. So my 
my story, similar to everyone else who might be here, is that also suburban, <laughs> um, grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts, in, yo, yeah, oh, there we go, in the, in, born in 1969. I was probably about um, six years old, and we went back to school shopping, and my mother found me a pair of Keds that had little yellow smiley faces printed all over them. They were, it was emojis before it was really an emoji thing, but obviously the smiley face was iconic. And she bought me these kids for school, and I clearly was growing faster than anyone else in school. <laughs> so I wore them for all of about a month before they became uncomfortably tight. And I was like, but I was still committed. I was, uh, these were my shoes, it was my fashion statement. These were, this defined me, these, these random smiley face shoes. And she said, I said, can I get them bigger? I need them bigger, I need them bigger, I need them bigger. She was like, they don't, they don't exist. We've, we bought them. And then they sold out of them and then they were gone and I was like, I need, I can't wear another pair of shoes to school. I will not wear another pair of shoes to school. And she said, I'm sorry, but they, they're, they're not there. So for weeks, I've pried my feet into them and I just, and I marched myself to school and I was like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't go to recess. <laughs> because it was just uncomfortable to climb on the monkey bars and I was like, oh my God, I need these shoes. And she finally one day said, look at this. And it was a pair of green Nike Cortezes with yellow stripes on them. And she said, wouldn't you love these? <laughs> and I wore those shoes for a year afterwards, completely happy. So fashion is disposable, watch out people. Thank you. Put your hands together for Jerry Riley. Well, as I'm, I'm sure you've all can figure out, I'm all about fashion, you know. So, um, no, I'm a, I'm a t-shirt and jeans guy. Like fashion's, you know, it's just not my thing. But I do realize fashion's important. Fashion is, fashion is what you present to the world. And when you meet somebody for the first time, the first thing they see is whatever you're wearing, whatever your fashion is. Now, 35 years ago, more or less, um, I went on vacation with a friend. We went to Ireland, and we were hitchhiking around, and, and we decided to go up north, which is kind of crazy. It was uh, uh, back in the time of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. We went to Belfast, which is kind of like this, uh, it was, you know, kind of a crazy place, but we were young and stupid, so we went to Belfast, and, and uh, we were there, there was a live music, we went out this night, and I met this woman, her name was Mari, and she was working at the door of this place, and uh, so she made this huge impression on me. We traveled on, and, and we spent one night, and she said she was coming to America, the, uh, it's about six months later for work, and she would look me up. So I came home, and four or five months later, she called up and said, uh, oh, the work trip fell through and I'm not coming. Well, for the next three years, we kind of vaguely kept in touch. Maybe once a year, I'd send a little postcard, she'd call up. It was just somebody you met on vacation three years ago. 
So three years later, phone call comes in. I answer the phone. I said, I've given up on you. Are you ever coming over here? And she said, uh, yeah, I'm coming over Tuesday. <laughs> uh, now, I found out after the fact that uh, I had just put her on the spot. She ran out the next day and bought tickets to come over on Tuesday. <laughs> so she came over on Tuesday. She stayed, was going to stay for two weeks. She extended her stay for third week. And she went back to Ireland. I quit my job, and I moved to Ireland. <laughs> to Belfast in the middle of the Troubles. So it was kind of crazy. So I arrived there. It was in October. And uh, I had been there like a week. And Mari says, uh, um, our friends, John and Bernadette, are going to have a Halloween party. Now, Mari knew I was all, at the time, I was all about Halloween. I was a Halloween extravaganza. So I said, great, great, great. So I could get to work in a costume. And I go to a thrift store in Belfast. I buy for like 20 bucks or, or something like that, cheap. I buy a men's suit. A pair of wingtip shoes, a women's gown, some uh, fancy women's uh, high heel shoes. And I come home and I stitch these together. So I have a half woman, half man costume. And like, this is great. And I had a mustache at the time. So on the day, I shaved off half my mustache. Because I'm, I'm all in when it comes to this stuff, you know? I poofed up the hair, and that afternoon I spent, you know, an hour or two practicing to get this thing where I could do a real, like, cartoon masculine on this side and a cartoon feminine on this side. And I had this whole walk, and I had it all down, and I'm like, I'm going to this party. This is going to be great. So we get it together. Mari gets into, like, this uh, 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 ghost farmer costume. She gets, uh, you know, farmer clothes, and this other friend gets some clothes, and, and off we go to this party. Now, there were three things I didn't know before I went to that party. <laughs> and the three things were, uh, first off, all of these people who were at the party, Mari's friends, they were not into Halloween. And this was not like a real thing they did. <laughs> the second thing was, like, I didn't realize that people were not going to be at this party. Like, I, I assumed everybody would be in costumes because it was a Halloween party. I didn't realize that we're about the only people wearing costumes. <laughs> And the third thing I didn't realize is that the whole point of this party was uh, these friends of Mari's throwing a party so that all of her larger group of friends could meet the American guy that Mari is suddenly whatever. <laughs> so we walk in this party. I'm ready. I'm like, I'm, I'm girl, girl, this kind of thing. I got a great costume. And we walk in the door, and for about 30 seconds, I am like completely freaked out and self-conscious and it's like a big crowd, a big house full of people just in normal clothes and about, took me about 30 seconds and then I thought, no, damn it, I'm good. So I, I just double down and I'm doing this thing and I'm just like, I'm doing the thing, whatever, and I weirded people out, something <laughs> terrible, which was great, but and I just wouldn't back off. And I'm doing all this flourish and, and all this stuff. And, uh, and I had a great time. And the more people, like some of the people, you know, and it was kind of a great test to sort of see how, you know, certain people were like, okay, I get the read on you, I get the read on you, you know? But anyway, I found out in the years afterwards from a number of people, um, you know, sometime after, many of these people became good friends afterwards, but, you know, heard their version of like their take on, you know, seeing this guy uh, come in. Uh, but anyway, so fashion is very important, and uh, Halloween's not the big thing, but uh, Mari's still here, and, uh, <laughs> and she's... <laughs> All right, Gary, Gary Long 
Longton. Gary Longton. Longton? Oh, oh, it's you. Thank you. My name is Gary Longtine, and I uh, have been in the fashion business for, I'm retired now, but 40 years. And during that experience, I have to tell you, uh, I've had a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> uh, uh, I had a store on Newberry Street in Boston, uh, Madison Avenue, and in all places, Nashville, Tennessee. We built a clear clientele there, so we continued. Uh, we had a wonderful time. It was crazy because this is nothing I had planned. I was actually going into acting. And uh, I ended up in the fashion business. But when doing that, we ended up uh, growing very quickly during that process. And uh, we got a licensing deal with uh, the Mitsui Company, a trading company, in, and that happened in 1980. And uh, at the same time, we were asked to do Joan Kennedy's clothes for the campaign for Ted. And so we, we did that. And uh, we ended up, uh, I was doing a show. Just before that, I was in uh, San Francisco. And uh, the buyer there, Lillian Rayleigh, I don't know, you're too young. I, <laughs> I, I Magnans, does anyone remember I Magnans? There you go. Okay. So I had just finished a show in, actually it was really great, I had finished a show in, in Beverly Hills and I uh, did a, a, a fundraiser for Share. I don't know if any of you know that, but it's a, com it's a, it's a uh, foundation that raises money for actors and TV personalities when they get older, like me. And so uh, we did that show at the Milton Burles house uh, and we used all of those the uh, stars to wear the clothes. In fact, there is an episode, if you remember I Love Lucy, yeah. that she was in that show in Cher and she went out and got a sunburn and she wore a wool suit. <laughs> she, do you any of you remember that show? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the same thing. So uh, anyway, I then left that show and went to C.I. Magnus in San Francisco and I, I loved that buyer. She was German and she had a wonderful taste level. Uh, I get in in the morning and I showed all of the, I give presentations, uh, a trunk show, to show all of the salespeople what colors they can have their outfits in and blah, 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 and how we work as a company. So uh, just as we were finishing up, a client walked in and Lily said, oh, she, want, she ordered one of your suits and I want to show it to her. So it was really beautiful. It was a double-faced, which is two pieces of wool they do in Italy, uh, they, only they can. And you could actually turn it inside out and wear it on the other side. And it was bright tangerine and scaparelli pink on the other side. And the blouse was scaparelli pink, chiffon, and an ombre to the orange. So it was really a magnificent. It was only $5,800. So, <laughs> so the, the, Lily brought her into the fitting room, and she said, I have another customer. She's going on a trip uh, on the QE2, and she wants, she's ordering three of your things. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll watch for this lady. So I, I waited for her, and I didn't hear anything. And uh, finally, Lily came, Lillian came back, and she said, let's go in and find out what's happening. Uh, we walk in, knock on the door, nothing. We open the door. She's gone. What, what the hell? So we walk in, and we look around. And say, well, the suit was hanging on the mirror, but the blouse wasn't there. And I said, what the hell? So I'm looking, and all of a sudden, Lily and I, what, I got, I'm going to, the stink in here. 
So we had to open all the windows because the stench in the room was unbearable. And I said, well, what's that? They called maintenance to come up and check out what the hell was going on. And I go over and I start, there were these beautiful antique tables next to this little divan. And I went and opened the top drawer. <laughs> the customer had taken a dump oh. in the top drawer. I turned around and I opened the second drawer. There's my $850 blouse she, she used as toilet paper. So, I mean, doesn't everybody? I mean, come on. So uh, I immediately called my office and asked them to remake that blouse and, uh, because the suit wasn't damaged. And uh, I, I did what I could and I left that show and when I got home, it was more interesting because I called Lily and I said, did you receive the blouse? She said, yes, I got it in four days. Thank you so much. She said, but I have a story to tell you. And I said, what? And she said, well, I was off this day and I didn't tell the story to my sales staff so they don't know. She said, but what happened is a very good customer came in, loved the suit, bought it for the opening of the San Francisco Art Museum show. And she said she loved it. We altered it right away for her, and she wore it that night. And she said, guess who her best girlfriend is? <laughs> so can you imagine that woman? She's at, having a cocktail at the museum, and she looks at her, and I wipe my ass on your blouse. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one. But I'm going to tell you one more story. And I have a thousand. I'm, I'm writing a book about my life, because it's, it's just be over the top. <laughs> And uh, it's I Remember You, and it will be out in 2020. But anyway, this is about, I don't know how many of you know Diana Vreeland. Yeah. Diana Vreeland, of course, was uh, a president of Vogue magazine, and then she left Vogue magazine, and she went to the museum, uh, Metropolitan Museum, and ran the, uh, the, she started the whole fashion that's hot now with the, the Metropolitan Museum big uh, show every year now. So uh, anyway, uh, I was looking for a venue. It was 1980, and I was looking for a venue to show our collection to the press and the media. So I was at the Plaza Hotel Oak Room, and I was talking with them about the ballroom to use, which is what we did. And the reason it was so important for us at that particular time is because Joan had just asked us to do uh, her clothes, and she was going to come to the show. And I knew that would cultivate huge press. So we did do the ballroom, and I get a call from my people in Boston, and they said, Gary, you've got to get the ad uh, that we've prepared for Vogue magazine. It's a full page. You've got to go over and pick it up from the ad company and bring it to their office because today's the last day for approval. So I said, okay, fine. So I jump in a car. I had a car. We went over. I picked it up from the ad company, and I go to Diana Vreeland's apartment because she was. they had told me that she wasn't in the office that day. I had to bring it to her apartment. So... I get out of 750 Park Avenue, which is where Jacqueline Kennedy lived, and uh, I was scrutinized, and I went upstairs to her apartment on the 10th floor, and the door is open. Bright, beautiful, lacquered red walls and beautiful oriental antiques. The place was gorgeous. And so I stepped out, and I looked, and there was a maid in the corner, and she was ironing. And I said, oh, oh yeah. So I walked over to her, and she said, uh, how are you? And I said, fine. And she said, no, 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 don't say anything. I said, well, uh, what are you doing? And she said, well, understand, Miss Vreeland doesn't like dirty money. 
So I take money from the bank, and I wash it in the washing machine, and I spray starch it. It comes out beautiful, and then I place it all in her handbag so she has nice, fresh, clean bills. And I said, okay, I get it. And then as I walked out, I thought, you know, there are starving children somewhere. <laughs> but uh, it, it's an incredible experience, and the stories are endless. I could go on all night, and I only have five. But, that, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I have an uncle who is gay. He's got a boyfriend more than 10 years. They're not married, but they have a place together in Provincetown, which is like the gay equivalent of being married. So, um, and so a few months after I came out, it was my birthday. And you know, he gives me like a check or something. And then he's also like, by the way, I found this old uh, shirt in storage. So it, it will probably fit you. It's a, it's a flannel, black and white, very simple. Some Uniqlo. I never knew that like Uniqlo was old enough that my uncle would have had something that would fit me. But uh, you learn something new every day. So at the time, I like hadn't really gone looking for new clothes since I had come out as non-binary. And seeing this, it was like it felt like it was a a piece of like queer history passed down from one gay to another. And it became like a staple of my outfits. As soon as the weather got cold, I, uh, I went to thrift stores and I bought more of them. And I got a few lined up in my closet now and I just, it became a part of my image because it was a way for me to just look at people and be like, hey, I'm gay. And then if they wanted more details, they could talk to me. Uh, so the next thing was I didn't really have a lot of men's clothes. Uh, like once I hit puberty, just nothing fit me right. And so it was like, I give up, it doesn't matter. But one time I'm back to school shopping with my mom and we're looking for jeans and I can't stand any of the jeans in the women's section. So we grab a random pair of men's and they fit perfectly. And you, like the feeling of a pair of pants fitting perfectly, I'm sure you all know, you usually gotta get them fitted. But like, I was, my mind was blown because I was like, men's pants that actually fit me. like. I have to be dreaming right now, this isn't real. Um, so that became another thing for me, like baggy men's jeans, all a part of my image. The last piece was um, I went to a, a Comic-Con sort of event with my friend, and I see a beanie that's got a little symbol from the series I really like, and I'm like, you know, I never really wear hats, but like, I wanna get something for the series, it's cool, I'll buy it. I barely take it off for like five months, and then my dog chewed it up and I couldn't wear it anymore. <laughs> so like all of these small pieces came together as part of my queer identity, the flannel, the baggy jeans, the beanies, all just helped me portray this image that I didn't have for a very long time. So this is where the acting part comes in. So I'm sure that in a lot of public schools, they're just like, here's these costumes that we have. It's like old clothes and stuff. Here's just like a million things we're gonna toss at you and see what fits best. Um, but I live in Newton, and our, I go to Newton North High School, and I'm sure none of you know what that means, but at Newton North, the theater department is like crazy wealthy. We don't even get that much money from the school. They just do so many events and charge so much for tickets that we have so much money to spend on things. So they'll like, they'll like, they, so every time a show starts, like one of the first rehearsals, they have the actors come in, and they like measure them, like we're getting fitted for a suit or something, and they find the things that fit quite right. They find things that will fit. If it doesn't fit quite right, they know like the exact measure that they have to take it in. It's kind of insane. 
So I am a big Shakespeare actor, and so we do one Shakespeare performance at my school every year. Now, no one does these in like Shakespearean costumes anymore, so, uh, so like there's like a different theme to it. So my freshman year, we did As You Like It, and our costumes were all 1920s England. Uh, the year after that, we did Julius Caesar, and it was like this weird, like the capital from the Hunger Games, and everyone was in like these weird dresses with like really weird white wigs. Uh, luckily, I didn't have to wear a wig, but like that's the thing that everyone talked about. And it wasn't always positive, but like after the show, everyone was like, those wigs, they sure were there. <laughs> so this past year, uh, we, were in a we did a production of Twelfth Night, and I got cast as Sebastian. So it was very exciting for me, it was a really big part, and so but I always get nervous with costumes, you know, like it's hard to find things that fit my body, and it's hard to find things that I'm comfortable with, but with costumes you're like, I just gotta go with what they give me. So they have me come in and it's like, okay, we did your measurements, here's what we think is gonna look right. Flannel, baggy men's jeans, beanie. <laughs> and that production was the best production I have ever been in. Put your hands together for another Jerry, but it's Jerry with asterisks on either side of the name, Jer. Jer! Yeah! Well, I know all these stories tonight are with fashion, clothes, but there's also another fashion that's with anything else you buy. Your car is a fashion statement. Bicycle. I love green. I love green, I buy green. So, this actually happened two days ago. There was a backstory is this. I'm, at, uh, I'm working at Penn, and I'm at home in, in Philadelphia, and I go online, and I see a bicycle. And um, I haven't had a bicycle in like 15 years, and it was avocado green. It was a Schwinn, it was, I, I looked at it online and said, there's gotta be a little bicycle like this. I'm just gonna get it and put it away. I don't care. So I get it, they mail it in. It's a big bike. You have to be six feet tall to ride this bicycle. So I put it together, and I had it for a while, and uh, drove it around, and I never saw another bicycle look like it. It's a courier bike, single gear flywheel, like bull handlebars, it was sick. So um, in March, I ride my bicycle 10 miles from where I live, over to my friend's house, over near Pat's and Geno's, uh, downtown. <laughs> and I park it outside, I lock it up. I go and say, hey, yeah, we go play cards. And I lock it up with a cable lock with a combination on a, on a road sign. I lock it up and he comes outside and says, hey, do you want to bring that upstairs? No, it'll be fine. Go upstairs, play cards, come back down, I come back, what's there? Just my cut uh, cable lock right there on the ground. I'm mad, I'm like, it's gone, I'm never gonna see it again. They're gonna strip it clean, probably paint it some kind of orange or black or something. I'm never gonna see it again. I go home on Wednesday, and Thursday was August 8th, 8-8. And I'm getting ready to go over his house, and he goes, hey, is this your bicycle? It's on the same pole. <laughs> the wrap on the handlebars is now white, and there's that white seat. And I was like, yes, that's my bicycle. Call the cops, call me an Uber. I'm coming over right now. <laughs> so, he calls, so I get in the Uber, and I'm telling the Uber driver about this thing. I was like, it's got to be my bike, and it's 8-8. It's got to be my bike, 8 to my number. So he drops me off. 
I get out of the car. Right at the corner is a cop. I said, hey, are you here for the, for the bicycle? He says, yes. I said, hold on, let me go look at it. I go over to the pole. The bike's gone. <laughs> I come back over and say, hey, what happened? He says, is that your friend, that guy? Yeah, the guy who called you? Yeah. He goes, he took it upstairs, and he gave the guy 50 bucks. I said, wait a minute, first of all, who has the temerity and a gall to park the bike right at the, science, at the scene of the crime, and why'd he pay him 50 bucks? He goes, yeah, he should have been gone to jail, and the cop was upset. Yeah, I know. I'm like, okay, hold on, my friend's a real minch. So I said, let me go talk to him, see what goes on. So I go upstairs, there's my bike. It's got a new seat, right, white seat, and it's white down to the bar. The, I'm like, wow. So I go in and said, Richard, what happened? Why is, why, why'd you give the guy 50 bucks? He goes, it was Emilio. I said, Emilio stole my bike? He goes, no, that was five months ago. He just bought it a little while ago. I was like, really? My God, Emilio's like five, six. <laughs> so they didn't change the color of the bike or anything. So I go, okay, he's got a family. He said his bike got ripped off a couple weeks ago, and he said he just bought this thing. So later on, I see Emilio, and I said, Emilio, Hey, he goes, I'm sorry, you know, it was your bike. It's okay, don't worry about it. It was I'm like, but you know, that bike is so big. Why would you get it? He goes, I love the color. <laughs> okay, let's welcome to the stage Paul Hewins. Paul Hewins. Paul. You know, when I when I came here tonight. I didn't realize we were gonna start a back-to-school support group. <laughs> and I'm so happy that I did. It makes me feel good. My daughter said, Dad, you're gonna go up there and talk about fashion in a polo shirt and jeans? And I said, that is exactly the point. I don't understand fashion. And I went back to in my memory and trying to figure out what the hell happened. So I went back to high school shopping. Senior year, going into my senior year, I had a deal with my parents that said, I'm working, you buy your own clothes, you take yourself out, we'll give you a roof and five crappy meals every week, you take care of the rest. So I went to the mall in Hyannis. The day after, I had gone to the Pat Benatar concert at the Cape Cod Coliseum. But I made a quick stop at Nantucket Sound first, and they showed me the Pat Benatar album on a new turntable in enormous Technique speakers. So when I showed home that day, with the turntable and the speakers and no clothes. It wasn't a problem. But then I said, wait, so why the hell didn't I care about fashion at that point? What was the, what was the point of my life that it just fell apart on me? And it was back to school shopping. 1975, my mother finally allowed me to pick my school wardrobe. And she brought me to the height of fashion on Cape Cod, Sears. Because at Sears, you could buy winter tires, wrenches, and back-to-school clothes. And I got the other people beat with this. They had tough skins. Husky size. You had them? So I got green tough skins with a green denim matching jacket and two silk shirts that matched the green on green ensemble. Right, I was feeling, you know, I picked it out. I was feeling pretty good about that. But to top this, top this ensemble off, she allowed me for the first time in my life to wear sneakers to school. Not shoes, sneakers. All my friends had Puma. 
Adidas, Nike Cortez, all of which has come back, which is bizarre. Sears came out with a sneaker. You can look this one up that I got, blue, four white stripes, not three like the cool Adidas piece, four. Suede on the top called the most ironic name in fashion, the winner. Because when you're wearing the winner, you're not coming in first on the track and you're not winning the fashion race either. So when I wore the winners and my green on green, tough skin ensemble with the silk shirt and the wide collar, I got a lot of hell that time in middle school. But what I did, I refused to put it in the closet. I wore it day in and day out through the year because I was pissed. And then I put it in the closet and became this. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together right now for John O'Connor coming to the stage. There is nothing like planning a trip. It is the best excuse to get new outfits. And when you're in a new relationship, you want to make sure that the outfit fits the occasion. 1989, my husband and I are together for the first year and we're off on some great adventures. Now, David was from New York City, and the outdoors were really not meant for him <laughs> at all. And he got it into his mind that we were going to go to Montana, and we were going to visit his brother, Paul, who's a professional tree hugger, an environmentalist. Now, I sensed disaster, and I thought, well, perhaps we should take a little trip to the north of Vermont, and we'll try a little overnight bicycle trip. So. We went to the Eastern Mountain Sports, and we got really nice riding outfits. And we went with a group of friends, and David was a little cheap because he was hesitant to get a real bicycle, so he, he spent like $50 on a used bicycle. And off we went into the northern kingdom of Vermont. And we were six, and you know, David was the last one because the chain kept falling off of his bicycle, and he was always way far behind. And so, Five of us were pedaling along, and we saw something that caused a little bit of concern. So we all pedaled really, really fast, and we got to the top of the hill. And there was David down at the bottom by the, the concern, and he gets off his bicycle, and we're like, David, no, come up the hill, come up the hill. And he's like, no, no, no. And so he's down there, and, and, and he finally comes up, and he's like, why were you all screaming at me? Didn't you see that, that, that large dog that was wounded and was walking like this across the road? And we're like, David, it was a mountain lion. What are you doing? And he was calling in the bushes, trying to get it to come out. The riding outfit did not make it. So we went to Montana, and I sensed disaster. And our first day out was going to be fly fishing. And so we had fly fishing outfits. We had the gators on and everything. And David was very apprehensive about animals, because David and animals don't get along too well together. They seem to have an attraction for him. 
So, you know, we, we made dinner, which was horrible. We were sort of glamping in the Subaru. And it was time to wash the dishes, only it was nighttime. So we made David do it, and he was very apprehensive about going down to the water by himself. But he put his gaiters on because he didn't want to get wet as he was trying to wash things in the river. And so Paul and I are sitting by the campfire, smoking a joint, and all of a sudden we hear the screams of death. And we're like, oh my God, what's wrong? So we run down to rescue David from whatever horror has found him. And he has thrown all the camping cooking gear into the river. And we're like, David, what the hell are you doing? He goes, look, look over there. And we turn the flashlights and we look and there is a large buck gutted by a grizzly bear right in the water next to where David was standing in his boots. The boots didn't really make it. And so our next little bit of trip was David and I were walking through this tundra and it was really, really dry. And we were looking for a place to camp and we had our camping gear on and we had our Swiss mountain boots on. We looked really, really good, really good. And so, you know, we were trying to figure out where to camp and we were like in the Grand Tetons and we kept going and going and it was like, oh my God, we have a long way to walk. And David's like, well, let's, let's pitch the camp over by this copse of trees. And I'm like, well, that looks like a good idea. So I'm looking at all these trees and I'm thinking, you know, it's so dry, it's so arid here. What's all this moss hanging from these trees? What is this? And we couldn't figure it out. And so we, we you know, we set up the little tent and all of a sudden, you know, around five o'clock in the morning, the sun starts coming up and the whole ground is shaking like this and there's wild shadows all around us and we're like, oh my God, what is happening to us? And I peek out like this, David and I looking out. We are in the middle of a herd of bison. <laughs> and everything, the moss on the trees was because they were molting and they were rubbing up against the trees. And we were struck for five hours inside the tent, not daring to make a sound. And the outfit didn't make the trip. And then we were going up, we had, we had ice gear because we were now in Glacier National Park. And David was very apprehensive because everything had gone wrong, absolutely everything. And now it was time to go up to the glacier. So, we had everything with us. David even had his 50-pound 4x5 camera with self-developing Polaroid film so we could <laughs> capture all of this. It was a little heavy. So the route that I had picked to get there, I promised if it's like 1.1 miles, it's not going to be that bad. It was hot. It was 90 degrees, but we were going up to the glacier. So we're walking and walking and walking and this 1.1 miles just seems to go on and on and we're like four hours into this trip and David's like, what the hell is going on here and what are all these signs in red with three big dots that says SBW? And I'm like, I don't know and I don't wanna know. And he's like, well, I'm looking it up and he looks up and he says, strong bear warning, grizzly sighted within 24 hours do not access you know, the, the trail. And we're like, oh my God. So he's so angry with me because I had misread it because it was 11 miles, not 1.1. Oh. 
So we finally get to the glacier lake and it's like a swamp because the glacier is melting and it's like looking for a little piece of dry earth to put this tent and we hear the howling of wolves. Ooh. And David's like, I fucking hate you. I, we are going in that tent right now and then we are gonna get up at light and we are getting the hell out of here. It didn't work very well. The bears ate the food. It was bad. So our last bit of the trip was the horseback riding part. And we had really nice cowboy boots because what else does one wear but cowboy boots and a nice hat. And so David's not really a good horseback rider and neither am I, but I knew enough to say that I was so that I would get a really good horse. I didn't want to get a bad one. And David's like, I'm very inexperienced. And so David got the old nag. I mean, it kind of looked like a donkey. And we're going through the trails, and we're up in the high mountains. And this is an all-day thing. And David's trailing behind. And I'm thinking, this is like the trip with the bobcat. This is not going to go well. All of a sudden, we're at the bottom of the hill, and David is on the side of the mountain. And his horse is frothing at the mouth. And its knees are shaking like this. And there is a bear standing on the side. And the horse won't move. And David's like, go, go. And the poor thing wouldn't go. So the guy had to shoot off a gun to scare the bear. And that was the end of our trip. We never went back to Montana. We never used the camping gear again but it was a great excuse to go shopping. David W. David W. to the stage. Oh, look, David. David has been waiting so patiently. It's your time. This might be my worst nightmare. Um, so I actually am a doctor. And uh, back in 1975, when I was... Uh, in college, um, I was applying to medical school and I was paying the price of a very dissolute freshman year, but it was great. Um, and so it was a little iffy as to whether or not I was going to get into medical school. And the key was if you could get interviews at medical school, then you at least had a chance to sell yourself and, and maybe get in. So I got an interview at George Washington University and uh, off I went, and my sister was in a master's program down there, and I stayed with her. And back in the day in college, you had jeans, T-shirts, and maybe a parka. Um, so, but I had one pair of khaki pants, so I, this was where the fashion comes in, I, I said I would wear these khaki pants and a shirt, and I would be a very presentable person, and I was going to get into medical school. So I went down to... Washington DC and uh, stayed with my sister. She left in the morning and I had my interview like at nine o'clock. Now, it turns out I hadn't worn these khaki pants in quite a while. <laughs> and, and a more mature, intelligent person probably would have tried them on prior to going to DC, but that hadn't occurred to me. So I got dressed in the morning, I put my shirt on, I put the pants on, and they were basically culottes at this point. <laughs> 
so I, I, I had probably four inches of bare skin between the bottom of the pants and the top of my socks. And it was 9 o'clock in the morning. There was nowhere, I, I, or 8.30 at this point. I couldn't buy anything. And I just remember standing in my sister's apartment in front of her mirror and looking and going, oh, my God. You know? So then I tried various postures. And I found that if I crouched in a certain way, I could get the bottom of the pants to almost touch the top of the socks. <laughs> then I practiced walking. <laughs> and then I felt like I was ready. So <laughs> I got, went downstairs, I got in a cab, and off I went for my interview at George Washington. I get out, and I had to go into the Ross Hall and everything. Like this. And the secretary kind of looked at me. And I said, hi, I'm here for my, my interview for medical school. So I walked in, and the two doctors who were there looked at me. And everyone just kind of looked at you like as if they weren't sure exactly what they were seeing. So then I sat down, and I thought, oh, this is better. I can cross my, you know, I can, I, but I crossed my legs. And once again, I was wearing culottes. So the interview went on and, and such, and uh, I went back, and my sister said to me, how did it go? I said, well, I'm not sure. I said, when, when I left, everyone was patting me on the back solicitously and saying, thank you so much for coming. So in any case, they actually accepted me. And, 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 but, but I decided it was really an act of pity. And uh, so that's how bad fashion actually worked out well for me. Thank you very much. All right, put your hands together for Sylvia. This is a story about Raspberry Pi. The year is 1977, and I'm a waitress at a small cafe called the Alpine Cafe in Uray, Colorado. Ure is a little-known sister of Telluride uh, set in the San Juan mountain range on the western slope. I had, because I was a new hire, the Sunday shift, and I had to work every Sunday. That was a condition of the job. I only had Saturdays off, and I had to open for breakfast. I had to be there at 5.30 in the morning in white, with white shoes. I could get away with braids and barrettes and no hairnet, um, but I had to wear white, and then I was off at three. They also gave me the bay way in the back of the large room uh, where I had to keep the coffee pots going, and there was a counter, and there were donuts, cake donuts in cake tins, mm, cake displays, and pies. And you didn't get as many tips there because people didn't order meals there as much as they ordered coffee. But I was happy to have a job because it meant I could stay in Uray. After a while, one of the waitresses said to me, did you notice he's not here today? And I said, who's not here today? And she said, your fella. And I said, what fella? And she said, well, you know, the one that comes in every morning at 7 and orders his coffee black and always sits in front of you. 
And I said, oh, that fella. And I decided to watch the next morning. And he did. He came in and he ordered his coffee black. And I looked at him carefully because he was wearing a flannel shirt. And I liked that about him. I sort of collected flannel shirts, though how I collected them is another story. And... <laughs> And um, he had he had what he had wire rim glasses, and he sort of looked like a really cute combination of Kevin Costner, whom I wouldn't know about for another ten years at least, and a very thinner, tighter-haired, um, taller John Denver. So I liked him, and it was Colorado. Um, then I didn't see him for a while. And when he came in next, he came in at lunchtime with, with, with his grandmother. And they sat at the back counter, and they ordered pie. And later, maybe a week later when I saw him again, and, you know, because I had many, many customers to pour coffee for, so I didn't linger over him, um, ex you know, except after he left, I would look, and there was always a dollar under the coffee cup, which was really nice. I knew it meant he liked me. Um, and he said, my grandmother liked you. And I said, what is your favorite kind of pie? <laughs> yours, not your grandmother's, yours. And he said, well, I don't know, probably, you know, kind of a berry pie. And I said, what kind of a berry pie? Thinking we were talking about pie. And he said, well, I don't know, raspberry? And I said, well, has anyone ever made you a raspberry pie? And he said, nope. And I said, well, I'll make you a raspberry pie. And he said, huh. And then a week later, <laughs> when he came in, he said, I know a place where you can pick wild raspberries in Colorado that nobody else knows about. And I know about it because I drive the snowplow to keep Red Mountain Pass open in the winter. And I said, oh, is that dangerous? And he said, probably. <laughs> we went raspberry picking. I picked a whole um, saucepan with a lid full of raspberries. I was careful not to spill it. Um, he got me home. He never touched me the whole time. I remembered why I liked him. And I said I would bring him the pie uh, the next day on my uh, shift uh, at Sunday um, when, if he came in. But he said he didn't know if he could come in on Sunday. And I said I would make it Sunday night. I'm sure they would keep in the refrigerator. And, and I would bring it in for him Monday morning. So I had a bit of problem after work, after three, making the pie because though I had tried to buy a pie shell, I had jammed it into the refrigerator with, that I shared with my roommates, and somebody had like spilled like hummus or something all over, and it had leaked. So I had to kind of like make a pie shell out of like from scratch, out of like flour or bisquick or something, and that didn't work that well. And then the berry recipe and the Joy of Cooking book that I had sort of like lifted from our kitchen at home, it, it didn't really have raspberry pie. It had blueberry pie. I was at 13,000 feet, and I didn't know how to modify the recipe for altitude, and I didn't know how to take the liquid out of the raspberries to make them more like blueberries. And so 
and I didn't have a, uh, anything for the top crust, so I put oatmeal and granola and coconut and honey and gobs of butter, because I thought butter. And so it wound up like melting into this kind of soup that looked like you know chicken fat over like berry gravy. It was disgusting looking. And I put Reynolds wrap over it and put it in the refrigerator with a big sign, don't spill you know anything on this pie. It's not for me. And the next day I brought it in, and, and I, I showed it to him with his coffee, and I said, this is for you. And he said, thank you, and we put it aside, and he drank his coffee, and he left, you know, and, and that was that. And then he came in the next morning, and he said, I don't have time for coffee. I just wanted to let you know that I was invited to Baja to go sailing, so I won't see you for two weeks, but then I'd like to take you out for dinner. Fast forward. I was, oh, as he went away, I said, send me a postcard. And he did send a postcard. And the postcard said, this is a picture of the boat. It is my dream to own someday. I will call you when I return. And I didn't like this because I was by the mountains. And I didn't know what the Pacific Ocean was like yet because I had stopped at Colorado. And he was on a boat. And he didn't say when he was coming back exactly. So I was a little bit put out. But I missed him. When he finally got back, um, he took me driving. This is the fashion part. Um, <laughs> he showed up in sort of an off-road vehicle, which was kind of like an aqua pickup truck, uh, aqua what do you, um, flatbed, you know, no back pickup truck with big, big round tires, big tire rims, old car. But he knew how to drive it. He knew all the turns. And he found this place he said nobody else knew about, and nobody would bother us there. And we sat and we talked a really long time. And it was really hot on the ledge. And he took his shirt off. And I don't know yet if I had seen Madonna in Desperately Seeking Susan. But <clears throat> for the sake of this story, I'm going to pretend I had, because I knew I was wearing a black, opaque bra. And I said to him, if you don't mind, I'd like to take my shirt off too. I'm wearing a bra, which is like a bathing suit top, so it should be all right, isn't it? And he said he didn't see a problem with that. So I did. And we lay there on our T-shirts on this warm Colorado dirt, looking at the alpine sky. Fast forward, <clears throat> maybe six weeks later, when I finally spent the night, I fell asleep around 3 in the morning. And when I woke up, he was looking at me, and I said, Why, what are you looking at? And he said, well, I'm looking at you. And I said, well, well, when did you wake up? I just woke up. And he goes, I know, I watched you wake up. I don't think I slept. And I said, well, why didn't you sleep? And he said, I couldn't sleep because you were so beautiful in the moonlight, the slope of your hip. and gentlemen, put your hands together for Kristen Knowles. When I was in high school, at Nosset High School, my favorite place to go shopping was St. Joan of Arc Thrift Shop. And um, my favorite type of clothing my senior year was wearing old men's suit jackets with ties. Um, I was the one who thought I was all Belinda Carlisle. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I'd wear a tie and the suit coat and pumps, you know. And um, so anyway, when it finally came time for me to get my first real business suit, I actually had to have my mom taking take me shopping to an outlet mall. And the reason I was buying those suits is because I had my first real job. I had just graduated from college, and I was moving to Atlanta, Georgia, to be with my boyfriend. Well, that's really what I was doing, but I told everyone that I had a job in Atlanta, Georgia, so that I was <laughs> And he said to me very clearly, if you want to come to Atlanta, it has to be for you. And I'm like, of course, you know, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm not following you. Um, so, girl grows up on Cape Cod and just suddenly wants to live in Atlanta. I don't know how that happened. So anyway, so I'm 21. I moved to Atlanta. I've got my business suits. I've got the black and the navy. <laughs> really, really bad to idea to buy like the same pair of shoe in those colors because in the really or early morning you will wear one of each. You won't notice until noon, right? Um, so my first job was at the Omni Hotel at CNN Center. It was owned by Ted Turner when he was married to Jane Fonda. I was sure I never got to see her the whole time I was there. Um, however, when they hired me, the food and beverage director of the hotel told me that I was there to help them figure something out because something had been going on in the restaurant where I was going to be the assistant manager. And though it was quite busy, it wasn't turning a profit. And so I said, okay. And here I am, you know, never lived in the South, I'm 21 years old. Yes, I had worked in restaurants since I was 14, however, like, what? I didn't sign up to be a private detective, right? I'm the assistant restaurant manager. So, anyway, oh yeah, oh so, okay, get this. The name of the restaurant was The Lion's Den. I'm, <laughs> and boy, was it ever. It was a Wizard of Oz themed restaurant directly across from CNN Studios in the Omni Hotel complex, which is also where they have big concerts and the sports teams play and all of that kind of stuff. So people are only coming through there once in a while. It's not like a place you'd be like, hey, you wanna go out for lunch? Let's go to the, you know, it was just sort of like convention years all the time. So I've got another assistant manager named Doug and my boss is named Zahid. He's like six foot six, Middle Eastern guy, maybe 180 pounds dripping wet. He just chain smoked cigarettes and drank coffee all day and really had the worst breath of anyone pretty much I think I've ever known. Um, about a month after I start working there, well first actually let me go back to the day I arrive, my boyfriend and I drive from the Northeast down to Atlanta and I have to stay with him for like a week till I find my own place. Um, and so the first night when I arrive, I have to go pick him up after work to bring him home because I'm using his vehicle. And um, when I pull in up back where he, I'm supposed to pick him up, he's out back kissing another girl. <laughs> that was day one. <laughs> so, okay, so fast forward a month. 
um, I'm working. Uh, my boss, Zahid, says to me at the end of the day, um, do you want to go out for a drink tonight after work? Um, you know, we can talk about some of the politics at work and I'll tell you a little bit about this guy and like what his angle is and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, sure. So he takes me to the Marriott Marquis Hotel which is, uh, has this glass elevator, and the, the whole thing is an atrium, and it goes all the way up to the top. You can see the, you know, it's like sort of a Willy Wonka kind of thing. <clears throat> and we're sitting in this floating lounge, which is up on these pedestals in this atrium with the, so it's amazing. Um, and I have three glasses of white wine, and he has like three doers on the rocks. And then um, he says, you wanna take a ride in the elevator before we leave, and I said, great. So we get in the elevator and like the minute we get in there and it starts going up, he pins me to the wall and I'm like smashed against the wall and he's like smothering my face and just like attacking me. And I'm freaking out and I'm freaking out and I'm freaking out and I'm in a glass elevator in an atrium. Like, does this guy have any sense at all? <laughs> my God. So if there's any lawyers in the room, you might want to talk to me after. Anyhow. Um, so I get him to stop, I'm de-escalating myself, he starts to do it again. Take me to my car, take me to my car. We had gone there in his car, left mine in the parking garage at work. He was going to bring me back to my car in the parking garage at work and I was going to leave. That was the plan. We went down to the parking garage at the Marriott Marquis, he attacked me again. <clears throat> um, I got in his car take me, take me, please take me to my car. And he says, okay. And we're driving and we're driving through downtown Atlanta and then all of a sudden we're on the highway. And I'm like, where are you going? And he says, I'm taking you to my, my house. You're too drunk to drive. This is my boss. This is my boss. Oh my God, it took me about 20 minutes of fighting with him and threatening to jump out of the car on the highway for him to finally change his mind and turn around and bring me back to my car. Um, <clears throat> so that was um, my introduction to Atlanta. Um, from there, um, <laughs> it's one of those things where you look back and you think, I can't even believe that was me wearing those suits and being that person. Um, when I figured out what was going on, what was going on is that the bartend, two, both two bartenders were selling cocaine. Um, all of the wait staff were involved in a credit card fraud ring where they would take the vouchers when people gave you their credit card and they would run off like four instead of one and then pocket the other one so that when people paid with cash, they would pocket the cash and sign it out with a forged signature on the voucher. And the only reason I discovered this was because I had been a waitress for so long that like you don't get 30% tips all the time. Like from the same name on a credit card in a convention center where people aren't usually there on a regular basis. And eventually, yeah, so that happened. And, <laughs> and then I never told anybody about Zahid, by the way, who had attacked me, never said a word to anyone. He never came to work again after that night. Um, I have to testify in downtown court in Atlanta because the guy who was on my staff who was running the credit card fraud ring had fled the state after we had busted him with a credit card taken from a woman that very same day when she was mugged while she was Christmas shopping. So now I'm connected to this guy. He's from Poland. He's part of an international credit card fraud ring. 
and I start getting threatening calls at my home in Dunwoody and um, hop back in the car, put on my overalls, and came right back home to Cape Cod. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Bye.